Let me, let's go before the Lord and ask him to bless this time. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the pictures that we see here, the pictures of, of singing and something to sing, of reading and something to read that's true, that informs and instructs and guides our lives, something that we can root and ground our entire lives in and our families. The picture of baptism, the sign and seal of your promise to us that we have and your people, even as I look out and see this congregation, to see that you gather your people together in many places for the purpose to look back to you and ask you to inform our lives and to remind us of ultimately what's true in this gospel that has transformed us and is doing that in our lives. So, so this morning, would you do that as we look at your word? Would you use it? Would you use your spirit to remind us again of what's true, to live in what's true. And as we walk out through these doors this morning, that we would be living out of that truth of your promise to do what we could have never done in your salvation work for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3. Um, I get a chance here, I'll be filling in for a couple of weeks and I thought um, that this would be a great place, right? You know, I ask why Galatians 3, and of course, you know Bill's answer, right? Right, it's in the Bible, so uh, we're, we got a good start. But I've been a part of a Bible study the last uh, oh, several months on a Friday morning, and we've been kind of wading through, kind of inching our way through this chapter, really the book, but kind of slowed down as we get here, and just thoroughly enjoyed digging in and, and, and drinking in the, the, the truth of the gospel as Paul seeks to help them understand where they're wrong and what the gospel is. And so we're going to get as far as we can next couple weeks on this passage in Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 through 9 this morning. I'll really just be looking at 1 through 5, but we'll read 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. As I mentioned, this is really Paul, his first letter as he writes, and as he writes to the church in Galatia, his attempt is to correct them based upon, to renew them, their understanding of what the, what the gospel is, what the truth that he preached to them earlier, because there's been some others who have come in who have affected that. And, and it's no question what his 
emotion is like or what he, how he feels about this particular situation. He speaks to them. Probably your Bibles, English Bibles, will have an, an exclamation mark at the end of that opening line, O foolish Galatians. If we could hear his voice, how would that be said? He would have some inflection in it, right? It would be raised. It would be elevated, right? He, he would, you would hear him clearly above the crowd as he says, you foolish Galatians. And even the Greek language is maybe even stronger than that as he wants to get their attention. If he was texting or emailing, he might use an emoticon here, right? He might try to get in to get his point because he wants to capture their attention and he wants to capture our attentions as well. Why would he be so strong as he opens this particular point? Anyone who happens to be a parent here or has been responsible for a child or someone under your care, and you happen to find yourself in a particular situation where maybe the surroundings are dangerous, there's something that might hurt them and you have a concern for them, knows why you would change your language. You're going to speak differently in that situation than you would in any other. You're going to raise your voice to make sure they can hear you clearly about the dangers that are present, to make sure they can know that. That as a father, as a mother, you want to speak to them so they will hear you. That there will be no misunderstanding about who has spoken or what has been spoken. And so Paul raises his voice and he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has tricked you? Who has drawn you away from the gospel? Who has led you away from the truth and returning to a dependence on the law, dependence on something else apart from Christ? Because if you do this, if you find yourself led back to the law, depending on something that you bring to the table, it will cut the very life and heart out of the gospel. It will no longer be good news to you. It will be nothing but something that enslaves, something that creates division, something that turns you back to your own self-reliance and your self-dependence and breaks you apart as a body. And so he is clear and he wants them to hear and he wants us to hear. Anytime the gospel would be changed in any way or added to it, that we need to hear its foolishness because it ceases to become the gospel. A little background on the book of Galatians. I mentioned it's the, the first place that he visited, the first area, his first missionary journey as it began to grow. The church came about there. Churches were planted several years prior to the writing of the letter. There was good things taking place in their lives. The gospel came, they, they embraced it. They were believers, they understood what had taken place. They had left the, 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 the entrusting themselves to the law or trying to find some other means by which they would approach God and they entrusted themselves to Christ. Both pagans, both Jews and Gentiles alike had believed and as he writes to them, but now after several years have gone by, some others have kind of come in, some infiltrated who are Jews. They're called Judaizers. And what just means that they've done, what they've sought to do is reuse or reinvigorate the law and the use of the law in the church. And what they've said is the gospel of Christ and faith is a great place to start, but there's more. And you need to return to using the law and adherence to that as a means of your salvation, as a means and a basis of your standing before God. And of course, Paul will have none of that because the gospel doesn't add that at all. And so he's writing back to them. There's their, their message. 
to add something to it to, to become Christians. And of course, this was a huge issue in the early church as it was initially Jewish. And then eventually, as many Gentiles come in, was what do you do with the rite of circumcision? That's the exact issue here. He was wanting them to be circumcised, not just as a, a rite or something as an add-on, but as something that was necessary for entry into the people of God. If you want to be a part of us, you must do this, is what he would say, is what they would say and so he is writing to address that particular issue, his requirement. And so in Galatians, first chapter, he supports, he upholds his uh, position as an apostle, that the gospel that he preached wasn't something he came up with. It wasn't even something that was told to him by someone else. It was something revealed to him personally by Christ. In chapter 2, we find that the, the passage we read in our affirmation of faith, that last section, he wants to clearly delineate two different approaches to God. One is by works and one is by faith and trusting what Christ has done. And he delineates those two aspects. And he says justification is by faith alone. It's not by something we can do. It's not some work that we can do. And so he clearly focuses on that in that last section of chapter 2 as he addresses the issue and follows in the context of a situation with Peter where an Antioch separated himself from Gentiles because of his fear of others, of, of the need to return to the law. And so Paul kind of uses that example of Peter separating from the Gentiles as an example. He says, this is what happens when you return to a legalistic mindset, when you turn away from the gospel in this way. And then chapters 3 and 4, an argument that he supports, that he sets up for them, for the opponents that he has, and for those who are listening and I use an argument, and he is arguing, he has a case that he wants to build, but it's a case not just because he wants to win or because he wants to defeat the opponents, but rather his concern for them is a concern as a father for children. It's a one who is concerned that the gospel he delivered to them would be preserved. And not just preserved for them, but preserved for the next generation. So he builds his case, and he says, if you leave the gospel, this is what happens to you. Everything, all of the benefits of the gospel are reversed. If you abandon the, the gospel of, of Christ. And so he builds an argument in chapters 3 and 4. It's built around the presence of the Spirit, the necessity of God's presence in their lives. It's built around the picture of the work that he has already done in their lives to substantiate and to validate the gospel. And it's built around his key witness, which will be Abraham. And next week we'll spend more time talking about him as we look at that. And so we're going to look this morning at these first five verses where he builds this. And we want to see as he kind of lays out for, for us and for them, again, the clear line between two approaches to God. Two gospels, as he would call them, but only one is genuine, the other one is false. One brings life, the other brings death. In verse 2 he says, uh, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? or by the hearing with faith. And you see there he lines up the two approaches by which one would approach God. Works of the law or the hearing of faith. We have the same phrase at the end of verse 5 where he says, did you receive the spirit and the miracles that was worked among you by the works of the law? Was it effort something that you did or was it something that you believed in by which you received that? And so he draws that line. It's clear. He also uses the language of flesh and spirit. Something in verse 3 says, it's, is it by the spirit of the flesh? Is it something you do or something that God does? And of course, baptism this morning is a picture for us, right? It's something, something that God does. But he writes to them and says, no, it's not 
your work. And so he's, he is addressing these issues, these two approaches to God that certainly any, any one person could have, but one is gospel, the other one is not. One is genuine, the other one is an imposter. Now for them, the particular issue was circumcision. And again, as Jews, the, the use of that right would certainly be understandable. It's in their history. But it wasn't just the use of it. It was the necessity of it that his issue is taking place there. That it was required to become, if you will, a part of their community. It would be necessary, which is really the same thing as becoming a Christian. So it was a prerequisite, a necessity for salvation. That was their issue. Okay, and was, it was related to them. And certainly we don't have those kinds of conversations probably here. But if we draw a line from their situation to our situation, what we find is that there's something that is innate. There's something about each one of us, every culture, every setting in which we find ourselves, that there's a, a compulsion, a need to somehow find something that we can build our lives upon and to build some sort of case before God, some sort of compulsion that we want to provide a standing or build a standing before God that will increase our standing in his eyes, something that originates with us, something that we bring to him that came from us, something that we did that's innate, that's inherent in us. And the gospel will have none of that. Indeed, the minute we begin to do that, the minute we come to try to bring something to God that comes from us, that didn't come from him, something in our hands that he didn't already place there, what we find is we're moving into this world of legalism, of trying to put God in our favor, something we would do that would obligate him to us. And we see the danger there already, right? The minute we begin to add something that's there. So as we look at the situation, as Paul addresses it, so there's an immediate situation, but it's a a general one, all times, all places, all settings, we will find there will be things that we will, that are good things that we will use and elevate to a kind of level that we will use to increase our standing before God that's not from him, that will originate with us. And that's what Paul is speaking to, their specific issue, as well as to us in the different ways. And as we do that, as that thing, no matter how good it is, is elevated to a certain status or a place in our view to increase our standing before God, something that we import, stuff begins to grow. That's not gospel growth. Stuff begins to grow in our lives individually, in our corporate or community that's not from the gospel. And things had begun to take place in Galatia that were beginning to tear them apart that was not out of the gospel. Now, my wife is a, a great grower of things in the ground. Um, she, is a, she loves to grow stuff that we eat, stuff that you look at and you cut and you put in vases in our, in our house. And she does an incredible job of that. And I love it. I love it. But my primary job is to not cut down the things that she's, she is growing that she wants to keep, right? That's pretty smart, right? It's a good idea for me to do that. I mow the lawn. I like to weed whack the weeds. I get rid of the weeds. But the challenge is this, right? At certain stages of the growth process of certain things, I'm not exactly sure what that thing is. Is that something that needs to be weed whacked? Or is that something that might eventually turn into something we'll eat or look at that, that I shouldn't be? And so I'm a smart guy, and I ask her which ones, or rather she tells me which ones, right? And I listen, which ones should I not cut and which ones should I cut? Because the ones I want to cut are the ones that are only going to cause problems. Now, we know what weeds do. 
If I leave them, they're going to grow up and we're not going to have any fruit. They go in and they begin to strangle out the good that's there and there's no produce. And what Paul is saying to them and his challenge to us is if we allow these things to grow, if we allow these things to grow up in their midst, there is no gospel produce. There's nothing good that comes out of it. All we have is weeds. And what's taking place in Galatia, and he sees it and he's warning them of that, is that that's what's happening. Weeds are growing that you might think is gospel, but it's really not. And so his challenge for them, his challenge for us, is one that we need to hear, lest the gospel be nullified, lest the work of Christ be nullified in our lives. So it's a message that we need to hear. And he uses two arguments initially and then a third one that we'll get to next week. As he, as he speaks to them, as he, as he addresses them about this issue of the gospel. The first one, we get a clue from the presence of the Spirit. And he asks his opening question, right, in verse 2. Which he says is his only question, but it isn't really his only question because he asks other questions. But he says, let me only ask you this one question. I'll tell you why it's only one question. It's the central question for him. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith, the hearing with faith? How was it that the very Spirit of God, the very presence of God, came to dwell within you individually and corporately? How was it that that happened? And of course, as we read that, his assumption is these are believers. These are people who have believed. Earlier on in verse 1, he says, It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified that you've seen this, you've grasped it, you understand what this is. In fact, your lives have been transformed by it. But he asked the question, how is it that you receive the Spirit? And the marker of the Spirit for them, certainly as Jews, should have sent off bells in their, in their heads to go, wait a second, the presence of the Spirit means one thing. Okay, It means that there's been a transition if you read your Old Testament, I read the passage in Ezekiel chapter 36, and you can go to, to Jeremiah, and you can go to Joel, Joel, Joel chapter 2, and you find that throughout the Old Testament, there's this pointing kind of mark to the presence of the Spirit is the reality of the picture of God finishing his work through the Messiah, that he would show up in a unique way. And the marking and the presence of the Spirit with his people in these kinds of miraculous kinds of ways where God would say, I would dwell with, with you is a marker that something has transitioned in their lives. And he asked them the question, how did you receive this? How did the presence of God come to be real in your midst? So real that you can point to things that are real, that have happened. Point to people who have trusted, people whose lives are transformed, things that have happened that can be explained in no other way. How is it that his presence could become so real? How did that come about? Was that something that you did? Was it something that you earned by the law? Something that you did by some sort of uh, obedience? Or was it something that he did? Was it by faith? Was it by his finished work? Because the key signature, the key signature of the work of Christ, of his work being completed, was the coming of the Spirit, was the fact that God would now indwell his people and live with them. And for them, it should have been a signal. And for us, it's a signal that God dwells with us. And that's a marker that Christ's work has been finished in, in our lives. And so he asks them the question, how is it that you become so closely identified with God that he would place his Spirit within you? This incredible gift, the signature of Christ's completed work, this new era... As he goes on throughout the rest of this chapter, 
there's a marker. He begins to talk more about the, this shifting from the era of law, okay, this period of time where the law would be the tutor and the, ta- the, the law would kind of be ruling and the period of time where faith would rule. And, and we're, we can look forward to that, but we see that what's taking place there is he's saying this era now we've left is the rule of the law. We'll talk more about that next week, but we're, we've left that behind. And now what we find ourselves in a new season. As Christ has come, it's a, a completed work that he brings. And to return to the use of the law is to misunderstand the reality of what has been brought by the finished work of Christ. That we are now have moved on from winter to spring. From a season in which we, the, the law would oversee us to a, law, a period of time where there's freedom that Christ brings by his rule and his finished work. And to return to the law as a basis of living before God would be like the Israelites after being supernaturally rescued from Egypt saying, we want to return to live under that rule again. He says, you don't want to go back there. Because that's not where the gospel leads you. It leads you forward in God's redemptive plan. So the question that he would ask them, he asked, what time is it? What season is it? The presence of God's spirit is in your lives. It's the key marker, the key signature that Christ is at work in your lives. So we have this argument that he says, as he, as he says, God's presence is among you, that you are in this new place. Remember that. This didn't come by something you did. This came only because of something that God has done. Well, the second argument is intertwined with the first. The first one has to do with what time is in the season now living in the, in the ear of Christ's finished work where the Spirit now lives within us and God's presence is in us. The second one has to do with the outworking effects of that. And the, the question might go like this. What has the gospel done? What has the gospel accomplished in your life? What has the presence of God's Spirit accomplished and brought about in you in contrast with the place that the legalism would take you. What is it accomplished? What is it done? And he asked three questions here. He asked three questions, starting in verse 3, related to this. He says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? He says, did you begin here and end here? And it has something to do with what does it mean to grow or to find ourselves to be changed? Is it something that God does or something that we do? So that's the first question he asks. The second question, he says, have you suffered so many things? He says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So what have you experienced? And then the third question he asks is, in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit and do to you and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or the hearing of, of faith? See, what he's saying is, do you see the results of the gospel in your life. There's something real that you can point to. There's the reality of God doing his work in you that can't be explained in any other way apart from what he could do. The first question has to do with the sanctification process. How is it that you grow? How is it that you're changed in the very likeness of Christ? Is this process completed differently than it began? Is it completed by something you do or it's begun by something that God has done? He says, no. Apparently, this is the idea that Paul's opponents that he's speaking to, that they have this idea. It's kind of the street-level view of, of the message. You know, Paul's gospel is fine. And it seems like there was agreement on the necessity of Christ's death and his atoning death and all that. It's great. That'll get you in and that'll get you started. 
but it's an entry-level kind of place. In order to truly advance, in, in order to truly experience God, in, truly, in order to truly know what it means to be in the family, you got to add something beyond faith. There's things that you need to do that need to be added to that. That's great as a start, but you need more. That was their message, that something in addition to faith was necessary. Keeping the law, of course, would be the things that they would go to. The, the ritual practices, certainly circumcision being the primary picture, but not just that, more would be a part of that. And I think as we see that this morning, we can understand that there's a danger inherent, right? The minute you begin to add anything to the gospel, to what Christ has done, you begin to nullify it, to minimize it. And so we can see that, but the problem is there's also a lure, right? There's a lure that's in that, and the lure is this. For good, moral, hardworking people, I carry my own weight, I earn my own keep, I don't want any handouts, I can prove my basis for this, this, this mentality that's a part of our makeup, we bring that in and all of a sudden the lure of something that we can do is, is attractive and we buy into that and say, okay, yeah, yeah, I can do something. And I take ownership of that and I think that that comes from me and that allows me to take credit for something that I've done. And so there's a lure, there's a compulsion on our, in our lives. And of course, what's that do? The minute I find something that I can claim as, as mine and originated from me that I can bring to God, I think it brings me closer to him. It really doesn't. It separates me from you. All of a sudden, look at me. Look what I've done. Have you done this? Oh, you've done that. Oh, I see. It begins to separate and differentiate us. And so there's competition there's comparison that begins to grow in that soil the minute we begin to claim something that originated with us, something in our hands that we bring to God that he didn't already put there. It's there. And so this message of legalism, this, this message of the Judaizers in Galatia, as they brought that in, is a message that's at the same time attractive to our flesh and destructive to the gospel because it undermines and nullifies the gospel the minute we add something to it. Tolian Chavidjian, did I say that right, is a pastor, EPC pastor in, in Florida, has written a book, maybe you've seen it, but it goes like this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's how it's, the title is on the book. It's a formula and it's a beautiful picture that he says and he paints Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And his point is this, right? There's nothing we can add to what he has done. But you can invert the equation this way, right? And he does this. Jesus plus anything equals nothing at all. And it's a good picture to go the minute we begin to add anything to what Christ has done, we end up completely losing everything that he intended to do in the gospel and the fruit of the gospel that would grow exactly the opposite takes place. And so as he writes to them, he says, you, didn't, you can't see it as if something you now originates with you that comes from you, something that you do that God began. It's something that he does from beginning to end. The second question, the second question he asks is, did you suffer so many things in vain? And the suffering here can mean a couple things probably afflictions they went through as a result of following Christ and adhering to the gospel of, of clinging to the cross. They had undergone difficulties. If they were a Jew, they would have under, undergone the difficulties of leaving their community. If they were a Gentile, perhaps the same. 
social, economic, relational kinds of things that were real. They would, did, you, did you suffer these? Yes, you did. Something you could point to and say, yes, yeah, something has happened. Something you've given up something in your life. But it also could mean just the, the good things that come, the experience of the gospel. Did you suffer? Did you experience the things of the gospel in vain? Did you experience the forgiveness that comes in Christ? The fact that you can rest, that you can take a deep breath, that you no longer have to be on that treadmill that never ends of maintaining your own salvation through obedience. Did you enjoy that fact, that truth that we rest before him because of something that he has done? And Paul writes to them and says, did you enjoy that? Did you experience, did you suffer those things in vain? And indeed it would be in vain if they left the cross. The cross that brought the same experiences to them if they were to leave that behind. They would be doing that in vain. And of course the, the following question gives us the hint of his hope. The hint of the gospel, hint that the gospel is real in their lives, that it will not be in vain. It will produce that. And so he asks this, the, the second question. The third question has to do with the great things of experience. He says, did you receive the spirit and experience and see the miracles that's done among you? Was that by the works of the law or by the flesh or by the spirit? Was that something that, that God has done or something that you have done? You see what he's doing? He's saying, do you see the things that God has produced in your life, things that would be for them undeniable, undeniable transformation in their own lives. And certainly the miracles here he talks about that they saw as Paul showed up, as the apostles showed up on the scene, they would see incredible works of miracles and healings that would take place and accompany the coming of the gospel and even, in fact, perhaps continue to see these external works of God that validated the gospel that they believed, that said, yes, this is real, this is authentic. See, this is God at work and it's undeniable. But it's not just the external evidences, it was internal evidences. It was real transformation and people in their community they could point to. People they could look to and say that person's lives were transformed. That person used to worship idols, he worships God today. That person used to didn't even understand or love God and now he does. And so there's a real life change they could point to that, were, that was undeniable for them. And so as he writes to them, he says, I want you to see this. Simply look at your lives. Simply see what the gospel of God's grace has done. The minute you begin to add anything you do to it, you remove the freedom. You remove the transformation. You remove the growth. You don't have any longer fruit. You have weeds that do nothing but bring disastrous results. They do nothing but destroy, that separate, that divide, that bring guilt to bring kind of self-righteousness. That's what happens when you do that, when you return back to that. Indeed, those things that begin to take place, and you can read through the rest of, of this book and find they'd lost their joy. They begin to bite and devour one another. Their horizontal relationships because of the competition and the comparison begin to eat them alive. And indeed, the, the fruit of the Spirit was not growing, but everything else that would grow from that. And so the minute our trust begins to shift from Christ to ourselves, a whole host of malignancies begin to grow, certainly not the fruit that comes from the gospel, gospel produce in our lives. Once the weeds begin to overtake, nothing of value begins to grow. So this is his argument to them. He says, see the spirits at work in your life. You didn't deserve that. You didn't earn that. Look also at the things that God has done in your lives, the transformation, the marks of his spirit at work in you. Now, the question for us this morning 
as I look at my watch, a few minutes left here, is what do we do with this? I mentioned before the exact situation dealing with circumcision and the exact issues of the, of the law that they applied and that there's a reality that, that every culture will struggle with, that there's a systemic issue in us, that the fallen part of us, the fleshly part of us wants to find something that will prop us up before God, that will place God, oblige him in some way, will provide some sort of leverage for us and differentiate us from each other. You see, we use rules and laws and categories in selfish and self-centered ways. We use these laws that are good for our own purpose. We use them in selfish, self-centered, self-exalting kinds of ways. See, there's nothing wrong with the law, only our use of it. So the question is, how is it the gospel can come in and destroy, pull, weed whack, if you will, the weeds that want to grow up of legalism, of our own attempt to earn our standing before God? How is it the gospel comes in? Well, there's probably a thousand different ways to say this, but certainly we need God by his, the, the gospel to come in. It's a part of repentance in our lives. But I think the, the questions that Paul asks are helpful for us. They're, they're kind of diagnostic for us. They're kind of questions that he asks them, but can also be questions for us as they begin to diagnose our condition, our state of being. A number of years ago, we were driving the van down the highway and a little light comes on. The light says, check engine. You, know, you get out and you look at the hood and the, the engine's still there, right? Anyway, you take it to someone who knows and the engine light's on. And I said, what's wrong with my van? He said, well, really nothing. Well, what do you mean the check engine light's on? Well, he said, this is what's happened with your engine. He said, there's a little sensor and the sensor checks the exhaust of your engine. And it checks the exhaust because an engine that runs properly will have a certain kind of exhaust, a certain, you know, composition of stuff, whatever that is, where's a scientist that's in that exhaust. And so your sensor just does that. It's a, it diagnostically identifies what's wrong with the, if there's something wrong or not. And I think these questions provide a kind of diagnostic for us to ask the question, what's going on in our lives? Kind of that sensor that checks, how is the engine running? What is it running on? Is it running on gospel? Or is it running on our own effort? Because what's produced will tell what we're running on. And as fallen, selfish creatures, we constantly slip back into living and depending on ourselves to run the engine. And so Paul asks the questions, and I'm just going to quickly run through them. The question he asks has to do with the presence of the Spirit in their lives. How do you receive this? Do you realize the reality of God's spirit in our lives. How do we think about that? Do, do, does that? Does that, as an operational kind of daily thing in this last week, I've wrestled with that. I go, no, I don't think about the reality that God dwells in me. That that's an amazing thought that the holy God of the universe dwells in me and in us as his people. You know, frankly, I think sometimes I'm not such a bad place to be. That somehow my life is more accommodating to him. But the fact of the matter, it's not. And he says, do you realize how you came to have him indwell you? It's not something you did. It's not something that originated with you. It was something that came, that was accomplished and done completely by him. And so he asks this question to destroy the gospel. Do you realize that God dwells in you? And I see this kind of slowly and subtly and 
and seriously seeking into, seeping into my life at different times. Recently, just a couple weeks ago, I was praying for a couple of friends that, that don't live here. I was praying for them and about some circumstances that was on their lives. It was some things they had done. It was a result of something they had done, some bad decisions that they had made. I was praying for them. And the prayer went like this, and maybe this is familiar to you. In retrospect, I realize what it was, but as I prayed, it went something like this. Lord, would you help them? Because they, they really need it. They, they, they really need your help. At the moment, the words came out of my mouth, and this tone of my own heart in my prayer was kind of the light bulb went on, and I realized the con. Then I say condensation. That's not the right word. The condescending nature of that prayer. The questions went on in my mind as I thought this week. Do you, do you really think that they need more grace than you do? Do you really think that somehow any less grace that you would need was the result of something that's innately true about you, something that originated in you? Do you really think there's a difference between you and them? Do you really think the good decisions that you have made and the bad decisions you haven't made originated with you? As you can tell, I've wrestled and you realize that just slips into our lives. That it's, it's something that originates with me and the gospel comes in. It must come to those points, those condescending prayers, looking down on others, thinking that somehow I deserve this, something originated in me. I need to repent of that and immediately say, Lord, would you forgive me of even that thought as subtle and real as it is in my life? So he comes in and he challenges us. And the call to us is to repent of our sin, to, to recognize it's there. Second question, I'm going to end with this question, has to do with our sanctification. He asks, did you end, did you begin with the spirit and end with the flesh? And it's a question about growth in Christ. How is it that we grow in Christ? And he says, have you, is your growth now different than the beginning? Did you begin in the spirit? Did you begin by something he did? And now you're ending by something, you're completing it in something that you have done. And this is right, this, the way this goes, right? You've been walking with God for a while. You've seen growth and God does something. You begin to make good decisions and say no to bad ones. And there's good things taking place in your life. And, and you begin to reflect on yourself and you go, hey, this is pretty cool. Good things are going on, but then you begin to say, wait a second, I think I've got this one. I think I can kind of, I can drive this ship. I can run this car. I'm, I'm, I'm good. We say, Lord, I, I think I can, I, get, I think I got it now. He says, no, you don't. The minute we begin to step in the driver's seat, the minute we want to say, it's a my effort. I can do this now, Lord, is the minute at which that self-righteousness, that legalism steps in and we think, ah, oh, no, I can't. And where does that leave us? What we have done is based our sanctification upon something that we have done. And if we look backwards and think and see our justification in light of that, the, the work that Christ has done in light of who we are, it leads us down to two different roads. There's only two places that goes. One is self-righteousness because I have, I have to uphold my image before myself and before others. So it leads me down a road of self-righteousness or a road of despair and guilt. Because I realize I can't. I can't work this out. I'm so far away from being finished. And so Paul says, he asks the question, how are you finishing? How are you completing? 
Are you resting, trusting what Christ has done? Or have you taken over? Are you the one now running the show? Or is it on your work, your effort in something that we've has done? And so the diagnostic for us is to see God's spirit at work in our lives and to ask the question, how am I finishing this in our lives? Because the fact is, the gospel needs to come in to all those places as subtly as the prayer that I described earlier and destroy those things that grow there, to pull out the weeds, to destroy what's there. The minute I begin to add anything to Christ, it nullifies his effects in our lives. I'll conclude with a quote, Tim Keller, who writes a fair amount on this in his book, Prodigal God, addresses the elder brother in the parable of the two brothers of the prodigal son is oftentimes known. The elder brother Christianity, as he calls it, and the issue with the elder brother, because it's legalism, it's self-righteousness. He writes this, the elder brother's problem is his self-righteousness, the way he uses his moral record to put God and others in his debt, to control them and get them to do what he wants. His spiritual problem is the radical insecurity that comes from basing his self-image on achievements and performance. So he must endlessly prop up his sense of righteousness by putting others down and finding fault. As one of my teachers in seminary put it, the, barrier, the main barrier between the Pharisees and God is not their sins, but it's their damnable good works. What must we do then to be saved? To find God, we must repent of the things we have done wrong. But that is not all you do. You may remain, if that's all you do, you may remain an elder brother. To truly become a Christian, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness too. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all the other sins and under all our righteousness. The sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. We must admit that we've put our ultimate hope and trust in the things other than God. And then in both our wrongdoing and our rightdoing, we have been seeking to get around God or get control of God in order to get hold of these things. As Paul writes to them, as he speaks to us and God uses it, he speaks to eliminate, to eradicate these things that grow up that will nullify the gospel. As we do that, we experience the promise of the freedom that comes in Christ, the joy that comes with him. We see fruit grow individually and corporately. Next, we will continue to look at the, the law as we understand, uh, as Paul addresses that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have promised to do this. We see here today as recovering Pharisees, as those who are committed to our own self-salvation project. We want to do it on our own and that's the lure. Please protect us from that. Please bring us to repentance to reveal to us there's nothing that we bring to you that you haven't already placed into our hands. And help us to repent by your grace, your spirit at work in our lives, all the different ways that this grows up in us. Father, we are needy in many, many different ways. And I would like to also pray and, and uh, intercede on behalf of, of Lita White and ask that you'd be with her as she recovers. I pray for Ann Stiegel's um, mom as, as she continues to uh, deal with, uh, recover from her surgery. Uh, Father, I pray also um, Harris Tate at the loss of his mother this last week, that you'd be with him as they 
he and his family take care of the details there. Dave Upchurch, as he also um, travels to care for his mother. Father, I pray for Chris Bryan as he uh, is deployed to Afghanistan, will be in September as he prepares for that travel and preparation as a chaplain that you would prepare him. And we pray as well for the Kansas City, Kansas, the KCK team, the Yagers who are in, who are there. Um, strengthen them, enable them to serve you, um, to take the gospel, to see and live that truth out in their, in their midst of there. Father, we're grateful for the promise that you've given us, that you dwell us as we walk out these doors today, this great hope that what we have believed is not in vain. The transformation, the good that we have experienced is one that will bear fruit into eternity by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I ask you to stand for the benediction. The benediction, the truth God's given to us. Receive this from God. Also, to remind you, uh, elders will be up front to pray. If you need and would appreciate that, you can meet them up here. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. Great is your faithfulness, great is your faithfulness, you never change, you never fail, oh God, true are your promises, true are your promises, you never change, you never fail, oh God. So we raise up holy hands to praise the Holy One who was and is and is to come. Wide is your love and grace. Wide is your love and grace. You never change. You never fail, oh God. What is your love and grace? What is your love and grace? You never change. You never fail, oh God. So we raise up holy hands to praise the Holy One. Who was and is and is to come So we raise up holy hands To praise the Holy One Who was and is and is to come You are, you are, you are
to praise the Holy One who was and is and is to come. So we raise up holy hands to praise the Holy One who was and is and is to come. Who was and is and is to come. You are dismissed.